The Giant. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, Giants. Ram Castillo here on the airwaves with you. Welcome to episode number 26. Now, if you've ever wanted to meet or hear from a woman who was born in the 60s and started her design career in the 80s, has traveled the globe working with clients, including Coca-Cola Amatil, for 10 years, building their brand across several continents, as well as working with some of Australia's most successful corporate businesses, such as Qantas, then you're in for an absolute treat. To this day, she has worn all the hats you can imagine in the design space from junior to mid to senior designer levels, all the way to art director, executive managing director, and now she is the business owner of an agency that's been running for 16 years. Some of the topics we cover include what the design industry was like three decades ago, how she's adapted herself to stay relevant from the analog era to the digital age, but why analog and manual processes are still so important today, ways to upskill yourself and be more valuable to your clients, and why it's crucial to engage with juniors in the design industry. Now, before we get cracking, I'd like to introduce the sponsor for this episode. A little side note, I only introduce sponsors that I genuinely advocate as useful. And I truly encourage you to check them out because they support this podcast in helping with the financial resource in bringing it to life. So on that, a big nod to Igloo. It's modern cloud-based intranet software that's accessible on any device with a web browser. Imagine a central meeting place that connects three things, people, information, and processes. Everyone has access to what they need using tools they already know. For example, if you use file sharing such as Dropbox or Google Drive or have conversations over Gmail, Outlook, or Slack, it's all integrated. How about if you use Calendar? Salesforce, Office, and Google Apps for Work. Well, they're all included too. All you have to do is drag and drop the apps you want onto your control center page. It's the perfect way to design your intranet site to work the way you do. I've got many industry friends using this, and whether you're a startup or a globally recognized company, I highly encourage you to check Igloo out. It's especially useful for businesses working remotely, even for teams as small as three. Now, they've been generous enough to give you giants a free trial, so head over to giantthinkers.com slash Igloo. If nothing else, you've got to see their very quirky and cool 30-second video They've even been recognized as one of the fastest growing tech companies in both Canada and North America, alongside names such as Tesla, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Once again, that's giantthinkers.com slash 
Igloo, I-G-L-O-O. Alrighty, back to our guest. This episode will give you a true appreciation of how design has evolved over the last few decades and whether you're a mature designer struggling to keep up with the rapid digital age or a recent grad, you'll no doubt have some light bulb moments scattered all over the place. I present to you the tenacious, intelligent, and wonderful Robin Wakefield. Robin Wakefield, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Kimberly Crofts, actually, who's an incredibly smart and talented mutual designer friend of ours uh, who introduced us. So thank you, Kimberly, and welcome, Robin. Thank you, Kimberly, for introducing us. Um, So first off, I'm going to give you an icebreaker question. Um, Don't be scared. It's um, (laughs) it's hopefully one that um, you... Uh, we'll have plenty of answers to because uh, you've actually done a lot of globe trotting, based on the research I've, I've had of you. Uh, what has been the strangest delicacy you've ever eaten? Okay, well, I've, I have travelled a lot, a lot in Eastern Europe, and quite a lot in Indonesia. How many countries, do you reckon? Oh, probably about twenty. Yeah, right. Um, but the strangest thing that I've ever eaten actually brings me back to Australia. And um, one of the designers that was working here um, was from mainland China and she decided she'd take us out for a real Chinese meal. So she took us down to Golden Century um, after quite a big evening of work and um, she started to order and the guys that were taking the order said, this woman is very (laughs) traditional. So... We started eating and um, the chefs and some of the people that worked in Golden Century decided they'd sit around and watch us and their faces as we ate. So the weirdest thing that I've eaten would be duck chins. Duck chins? Duck chins is one of the um, specialties that she ordered for us. I've never heard of that. Which were just like a um, little part from the beak of the duck um, with a tiny little piece of um, meat at the back of of the sort of beef. Jeez, that must be uh, a rare delicacy, isn't delicacy. it? Delicacy. They were expensive um, and they were they were weird. I mean, I don't imagine there'll be lots of that going around. She backed those up with some sea cucumber, which was also pretty out there for <laughs> us, um, cooked in a traditional way. Love um, it. That's so, super cool. Yeah, so Dan Ling took us out there and it was just sort of, you know, a local experience. Unreal. <laughs> I love that. I was, I, I'm... Uh, I was uh, actually thinking if it would have been hidden in a dumpling or something, you know, <laughs> but no, that's good. Love it. Um, nice and raw. So where would you say your expertise lies? Okay, I've had a bit of a think about this one and um, I like to think of myself as a, a a real team player, right, and I've also always had this analogy. Um, I played very serious hockey when I was young um, and so when I'm – managing or working in a team, um, I think I think of it in a sporting context. Um, so at Walter Wakefield, um, I like to think of myself as the captain coach, um, but I also really enjoy when the young guys that are working for us um, trip you up and do something amazing, come up with the great concept that the client goes with, and then actually run with the project. So 
captain coach, but but also very open to being nipped at the heels and, mm. you know, the troublemakers that kind of turn into great designers are really welcome as well. So it's... Yeah, unreal. Mm. Yeah, and um, I think uh, that'll become more prevalent and um, more fleshed out as we carry this interview across um, based on your experiences. So um, let's start a bit from your upbringing and childhood. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that um, the things that um, you were interested in as a child, things that lit you up and excited you are clues to kind of what, what we all do now um, or, or anyway, we hope, we hope that uh, a bit of that childlike spirit lives on. Yep. So what um, was, was your childhood like and how did you grow up? Okay. Um, so I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Um, I spent a lot of um, my childhood either in Sydney or in a place called Ulladulla on the south coast. Um, I guess one of the, the things that we were always taught as children was that there's no such word as can't. Um, so if you wanted to do something and you put your mind to it, you could always achieve it. Um, and that's something that was really instilled in us um, from a very young age. So Your parents instilled that, would you say? parents, grandparents um, instilled it. And, I mean, that causes problems, but it also creates opportunities. So um, I was probably, as, as a kid growing up, I was probably, they didn't, I don't think they discovered ADD or I don't think they discovered hyperactivity, but I was probably both those. Um, and, look, I had a great childhood, water skiing, lots of sports, but always creating things. I'm always down in my father's workshop, mucking around with his tools, with my mother's sewing machine, playing with that growing things in the garden, getting my hands dirty, getting into things and doing things. Um, I was a real um, ride into photography and making Super 8 movies and things like that um, and had a dark room under the house that my father built me. So I was often just hidden away in the dark room, developing black and white, um, you know. It was an analogue lifestyle. Yes. Um, there wasn't any computers in those days. The um, most digital thing we had was a television. We had a black and white television. And this is, this is a nice one where um, my parents told me that we wouldn't get a new television until the black and white television broke down. <laughs> so one afternoon I got a screwdriver in the back of the black and white television and gave it a good one. I was going to say, probably would never break down. They made it so good back then. And then we sat down to watch it that night and <laughs> we got a new television. <laughs> But you got to keep that away. For, well, hopefully they're not the target audience for this and That's they won't it. ever find that out. Secrets revealed. Yeah. Um, okay, so a couple of things that, that just really struck me um, as you were speaking about, um, uh, you know, all your experiences as you were a kid, just the diversity of what you were exploring. I mean, how did you get exposed to that? Were your parents, were they the interests of your parents? No, they weren't really. I mean... Well, they, my father was a plumber. My mother was um, a, a bookkeeper and a dressmaker. Um, so, you know, they were hands-on people, you know, like my father bought, um, actually built our first water speedboat out of, you know, wow. timber. And um, so we watched that build. And Does he still have it? No, no. They, wow. It got, cool. it got upgraded to a, you know, <laughs> nice fiberglass, you know, US um, boat, but... Um, yeah, 
there's just a, there's a whole lot of you know history in in my upbringing of mm. people building things, making things, doing things. So okay, cool. Um, and your mother, same, same. same yeah. yeah. So if you were interested in like going to art school, or mm. if you were interested in drawing classes, or you were interested in training for athletics, or you know you were given opportunities to do that, you were never. I don't think we were ever told no, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. So, um, what would be, would you say the, the catalyst then that propelled you into the world of design? Um, well, I mean, one of the things when I was growing up, there was a lot of, um, activism. Mm, I was just about to say what, um, decade. So I was born in 1964. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you kind of think of like, the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. right, there's um, sort of punk music going on, right, so I embraced punk music and... That's what I was visualising. Um, and you still got a bit of, bit of punk in you. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, so, you know, when a lot of my friends were, like, enjoying disco and things like that, mm. I was kind of this other kind of into punk and yeah, cool. messaging and, you know, creating um, graphics. And um, then there was also... Um, the activism, so there was Franklin River um, dam protests, there was anti-nuclear protests, and they were all going on in Sydney and there were big things to to um, join and marches and So you were right in the thick of, of sort of the, the culture. Joining, the... joining those things, yeah. And so I, as I went through school, I was doing this kind of stuff and I kind of thought, well, one way that I want to, I want to change the world, Mm. okay, I want to get doing posters and get the message out there about changing the world and I saw a lot of um, activists taking photographs of things going on in um, underprivileged societies and um, photography was like, it was was more of a force than it is now Mm. um, in, in a sort of, a, a change, you know, mechanism to get messages out there. There was so. Would you say then you were you were interested or felt compelled to explore um, the voice that you had, and then the mediums that were that yeah. the channels that were available to you? Ex- yeah, yeah. Exploit those channels to get the message out there. Mm. Um, and and I mean, you know, I remember when I was, say, just starting at art school, um, a, a guy that was 10 years older than me said to me, Robin, these things are really passionate to you now, but they won't feel like that probably in 20 years' time. Right. <laughs> Which What would you say about I was that like, now? No, no, no. <laughs> he was probably right, you know. I think you do mellow with age. And, and if we think about um, the appetite that you had there, um, you know, whether it be curiosity, the the need to innovate or create, um, how did you transform that into a commercialised sense or, okay, so, you know, a way of yep. rather than art but yeah, design? So I didn't come from a privileged yeah. background, so I had this idea that I really wanted to do art and I wanted to do, mm. but, but I also saw that... Um, if you don't have the money behind you, it's quite difficult to make yeah. a name in you, you know. So I, I thought, okay, well, there's, there's got to be a commercial way to mm. exploit this. And I found out about this course at um, 
what was then Sydney College of the Arts that's now been turned into UTS and did the visual communications course there. Um, and it was great. It was four years of um, my brother, who's a um, professor and very um, an engineer, um, used to say that I went to kindergarten for big kids <laughs> and I've got a degree in colouring in. Love it. Which um, is every day um, it was fantastic fun going to um, Sydney College of the Arts and it was just the most amazing experience and um, the I think the the stuff that we did there was fantastic as well and set me up for my career. Yeah, perfect. I love, um, yeah, just that that sort of narrative of, of how you um, – uh, explored and then that being the springboard into the business thinking side of things how do you uh, make money out yep. of design yep. so what was the design industry like back then when you first started um, um you know is there anything that would shock people nowadays yeah, i mean the, the the biggest the biggest thing that um really was so different was it was all analog so everything you needed to visualize can you explain a bit more about okay that? so you if for, you the, were, for the digi kids out there, I've got these. <laughs> I've got these guys that work for me now, right? And they jump on the computer and they start visualizing things on the computer with their mouse. But if you had an idea, you had to draw it. You had to sit down. You had to. You got these things called squeakers, right? Which are big fat textures that are alcoholic and they smell and they sort of make you go a bit high if you use them all day. And you would have to render a picture that you've got in your mind or you're using reference for um, to then take that to go and sell it to the client to get them over the line with the concept. From a sketch, right? Sketch. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, or so a you scamp, had, you as had, you also call it. You had to have drawing skills. Hmm. You had to have visualisation skills. But then once you um, got that approved, you then had, the, had to have the ability to work with a photographer to art direct the photograph. Um, you then had to have the ability to then size up the image and use a bromide camera. You had to do artwork with a rotring pen and, and a white piece of artboard. Um, that, that artwork then got translated to film and that's where no computers, no digital film was hand processed. People had cameras and this stuff called Rubylith. Um Things went missing. Things got wrongly interpreted because you were relying on film planners. There was a trade called a film planner mm. and they then made what would then be turned into printing plates. There was a trade called a printer. So there's all these steps in the process that you, the designer and then you've got these trades people between mm. you and what the end product is. Yeah, this is so fascinating to me and I think um, – this is where your expertise of of starting, um, you know, at at the seventies and eighties end of the design world um, is so valuable for us because when we talk about a couple of things, process, fees, um, status, you, you know, how things, has things this moved changed really slowly? Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so, I mean, I love the digital age because mm. things move fast and that solves our clients' problems because they need to get the messages out there quickly and, and, and more and more so. But back then to do an annual report, which would have been, say, a 60-page document, um, w- would have been like a six-month process. 
and you would have had, say, two or three people working on that project pretty much for at least four months of the six-month project. Mm. Talk to us a bit more about annual reports, actually, because um, I just um, find that it's such a important part of learning typesetting, yeah. learning about <laughs> formatting. And I say this because I did a job for the Green Building Council of Australia. Okay. It was a um, 500-page manual. Right. And it was going at $600 per unit um, for different construction companies, architects, building companies, etc. That job took me three months end-to-end full-time Yep. Um, with author's corrections or whatnot. But as much as it was quite tedious, I still look at that job as the job that allowed me to learn about paragraph styles, character style sheets, um, hierarchy. So um, you were doing that on the computer? But I was doing that on the computer. So in the old days, what you would have had to have done there was you would have got um, all the text as manuscript. So that's like if you go back, that would have been all just hand typed. That's amazing. Right. So no digital message. It's just all hand typed. Mm. Then you look at that page of type and you can then um, you think about, you know, what's it going to look like if it's Garamond? What's it going to look like if it's Bodoni? What's it going to look like? And then you've got to think, okay, well, that page is going to fit at, you know, how many columns I'm get, am I going to have? And then you've got to think about the type size. Mm. You've got to think about the leading. You've got to think about the column width. And then you try to estimate how many pages that piece of manuscript is going to flow over. So then you, you've estimated it. You've kind of got a thought about what the page is going to look like. And then you send it off to the typesetter. So you send the manuscript off, they rekey in all the copy and then they types it and they send it back to you as galleys. So the column width is a galley. Okay. And it's like a picture, like a, it's on a piece of paper. Yep. Right, that's glossy and it's just white paper with the black type on it at the size that you've specified and it's just this big long roll and then you've got to stick it down and cut it, cut it up, and stick it down on the on the artboard. And how many teams would be working on this? Well, um, when depending on um, different studios, but but when I started, um, we had um, four designers, and each designer did their own artwork. But you would also have a junior art worker that would work with you as well. Cool. Um, So if you were doing something like that 400-page green building job, I reckon it would probably take four people um, about two months. Yeah, I think it just, the the takeaway, you know, the big one for me is just the appreciation of of, and respect of that um, production and the craft of typography, um, knowing that, um, there are designers like yourself who um, really were at the forefront of the analog, yeah. um, you know, immersed well, in that here's, here's way. Here's another really cool thing where um, we were working on like Westpac annual report 
and I'd just started in a new job, my first job in corporate world, and the um, you had to render, so you had to get a like a red fine line pen, and you had to render a whole page of type that was a message for this particular year, and there was probably thirty words on the page, and they were all in Bodoni. Mm. Right, and it was like say twenty point Bodoni, and I had to render those forty words so that it looked like it had been run out of a computer or looked like you know, in in red because it was going to be printed in red, mm. and it was in a book that then had to get it shown to the board. Mm. So that probably took me three days to do and make it look right. What uh, activities or tasks would you say would be something that would allow that transferable skill back then? Or would you say, nope, there's nothing really of that same nature? You know, for, so for example, in now, that process, yeah, yeah, now, I mean, you know, we talk about all these things and oh, look, for me it's just like you, you've gained hardcore Patience and your your design eye. Well, what what is, you, is different you really learn others. is you learn about the letter forms, mm. and you know that Bembo's capital W's got crossovers in the W. Not many other typefaces, serif typefaces, have got this lovely W with the crossovers in it. So cool. Um, but see, you you notice those things. Yeah. Um, so in that in that sort of frame of mind. How do you, for example, train a junior or midweight designer that comes in? Well, you try to get them to understand that. But but Mm. in the digital world, there's also been people that have kind of embraced that and and injected that into your digital. Mm. So a typeface like Mrs. Eves, um, I don't know if you know that typeface, but it's the most beautiful typeface that was designed by um, Susanna Lico um, and it's got... um, history built into it wow. that's been designed for a digital um, rendering, mm. but it's got thicks and thins and it's got sort of little strange bits in it that you used to get when the ink printed mm. um, letterpress. So so why do you think that's important in your opinion? Mm. Oh, look, I think that your listeners can work out why that's important if they get a hold of some Mrs. Eve's look at it on the um, computer mm. and just see what it looks like compared to um, another typeface like a, you know, Garamond or Baskerville. It's actually designed around Baskerville typeface. But if you have a look at Mrs. Eve's, you'll suddenly feel this wonderful, warm feeling that used to come with old-fashioned printing. Perfect. But Susanna's been able to inject that into this typeface. Love it. Um, When we talk about fees, um, was it a quite rewarding, prosperous um, sort of way to make a living as opposed to now? Well, when I was a junior designer, you didn't get paid very much. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first job I had, you didn't get paid overtime and you had to work long hours. Mm -hmm. Um, Then when I started running... Um, the design company that I ran for 10 years, um, everyone got paid overtime. 
because basically my theory is if if I've got people working for me, the client needs the work done, I need them to work later, they need to get paid for that, I need to charge my clients for that. Um, and even if I can't charge my clients, it's important that I pay the staff to do that work because that's what design's all about. Mm. Um, back then, um, the companies made a lot more money. Was there a respect for for um, the deliverables, the outcomes, that design? Um, you know, there, there there probably was more respect for the work that you did with your clients mm-hmm. because there was a lot more art um, and right. a lot more craft in it. Yes. Um, and, you know, they paid, you know, some of the photo shoots that I went on were like, you know, you'd go away for six weeks for um, staying in five-star hotels, flying business class, you know, with a photographer, um, but you'd come back with a whole lot of photos that they would then use mm. and really appreciate, um, whereas now... They say, oh, can't you find it on Shutterstock? <laughs> <laughs> Such a good point. Mm. Um, so let's bounce to, uh, you touched on it a little bit, you know, your leadership role, but um, can you walk us through the multiple hats you had to wear, you know, the various roles you went through as you progressed um, and what what did you learn from yep. kind of each? Yep. So, so I, while I was at college, I worked for um, a magazine called Campaign Magazine which was um, an Australian gay um, magazine that came out once a month. Um, And it was like this amazing job for a girl from the Shire. Wow. um, You know, suburban girl suddenly thrust into this world (laughs) of um, crazy gay kind of behaviour. And and I was working, um, you didn't, you started work at 11pm and you worked till about 5am and then the, Magazine went off to press. Say that again. Eleven p.m. You started. Eleven p.m. and you worked till five a.m. and the magazine went off to press. That suited me wow. fine because then I could get out of school. Yeah, right. During the day, <laughs> <laughs> but you only worked say for a week of production before the job went off to press. Mm. So once a month, that was the week. You're a machine. Well, I was when I was young. Wow. Um, what, so were you, what were you taking to get through? <laughs> <laughs> Standard just, coffee? Just, just lots, of, <laughs> lots of fitness. That's it. Yeah. Um, then, I, then I got my first job in the corporate world, corporate design, um, doing annual reports and prospectuses and um, working as a junior designer. Um, then that was two years. And then I saw this great company. Um, on the other side of the bridge, um, back in CBD, Sydney. So I was working in North Sydney. Yeah, right. Um, and this company was winning lots of awards, very creative um, and and really um, doing some interesting work. And there were two guys from advertising that had come into the design sphere. So they were rattling the design cage um, and making lots of money um, but having a really good time while they were doing it and had a great team. Where was that? It's a company called Horniak and Canny. Cool. Right. Uri Horniak and Julian Canny. Um, and I got a job as a designer there. Um, and then after two years, they, they were doing overseas photo shoots. They were doing really exciting work and they were art directing their photography. And 
So um, two years into it, uh, the opportunity to do a photo shoot for Coca-Cola came up and I, no such word as can't. Absolutely. Jumped in um, at the opportunity and sort of muscled my way into this photo shoot. Um, Went to Austria with a photographer. Um, We did a most amazing photo shoot um, on the side of um, the Alps between Italy and Austria of a family, two families stuck in a border crossing um, queue and they were playing soccer and having some coke in the snow in the middle of winter. What year was that, would you say? Do you remember? um, That would be 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Actually nearly 30 years ago. Because when did coke start exactly? Oh, (laughs) long, long time ago. Long, long time. Okay. A lot longer than that. But um, the the photo shoot, we'd actually rendered, you know how I talked about rendering? Mm. I'd actually drawn what we wanted to take a photo of, shown it to the client, the client had approved it. So then you've got to fly over there and then you've got to find the family, the cars, the people, get everything organised. Were you flying uh, in, a, in sort of small jets or no, no, <laughs> helicopters? No, 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 we just flew into Vienna and <laughs> okay. then got it all organised and then, yeah, caught trains down to where we were taking the photo shoot. So cool. Um, and then the next the next sort of chapter after, because you were in Coca-Cola well that, for. The, that was working at Horniak and Canny, yeah. but working for, for on projects with Coca-Cola. Yeah. Um, that then set me up for the next 10 years every mm. year. For six to eight weeks every year, we did photo shoots for Coca-Cola. Wow. In um, Austria, Czech, Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, Ukraine, um, Croatia. Philippines, Indonesia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea. What did you learn from from that, would you say, um, oh. the most? Well, um, I, I usually took a photographer with me, right, and um, one of the most um, how to get things organised and how to kind of make things happen. Mm. And that's where this, you know, such word as can't comes in, you know, like you see something, you see a, you know, well, one of the things we'd do is we would go to a new city, we'd go straight to the news agency, have a look at the postcards because this is before computers, before the internet, before being able to, you know, and you'd see where the most interesting places were in the postcards, most interesting view, and we'd try and work out how we could get some Coke into that, you know, like yeah. whether it was a Coke truck, whether it was a Coke umbrella, whether it was, and, and then we would work out where the shot was taken from whether it was from the steeple of a church or whether it was from a cherry picker beside, you know, ancient Charles Bridge in Czech Republic. So that was kind of the mix of uh, a bit of research and inspiration as well. Yeah, and, and just being able to no make Google. things happen. No Google. No, no, no. <laughs> there was telephones. So what was your role? As you said you, you've, you, you did a lot of, you know, annual um, Coca-Cola project work. So, so that was like telling the story. Right yep. of the business and where the business was going in those places. Mm. So what what the actual story was was the Australian company Coke Colorado mm. had the Coke franchises in those countries. Yep, and they were opening up after the wall came down. Yeah, right. Right, that's so a big job. The Coke guys were going in there, and and so we were writing stories about what they were doing and how they were making things happen. Okay, so you were doing um, a lot of travelling. You were doing annual reports, um, you know, um, branding Branding work, yeah. So we also did a lot of branding work for um, financial services companies. So one of those um, main companies was Bankers Trust. 
we did also a lot of work for Commonwealth Bank um, and Bankers Trust was like an um, investment bank. So we did all the ads for them. We did like little booklets about um, the different investment processes. We did like even the, the, the boring um, product disclosure documents that they had to produce in those times. Um, so there were massive projects that we worked on for them, but often you had this real opportunity to do some really creative and we'd like use illustrators to draw concepts and, and draw little books that told you about rolling over your super and how to roll over your super. It was interesting because you had to get your head around these businesses and these concepts that the businesses are talking about. So we're going into one time a beverage like Coca-Cola and understanding a beverage company and, like, if you need a twin-door Coca-Cola fridge stacked, I know how to do that because mm. I'm doing a photo shoot, I've got to make sure it's perfectly stacked because yeah. it's an ad and it's got to be right. Now, I might not have a merchandiser that knows exactly what they're doing, so I've got to make sure otherwise I come back with a photo that doesn't have everything right in it. Yeah, and, Robin, you make a really good point in terms of um, – you know, whether it's a, a business that you're not really exposed to or a product, um, you know, to, to lean in to that unknown. Hmm. And um, what is your thinking on the sort of, um, I guess, asking the right questions area, researching awareness of a brand well, rather than yeah. assuming anything? So much of it I think is empathy. Right, and and being able to talk to people in different organisations but also being able to talk to, like, CEOs and and senior people in organisations but getting the message also from um, the people right at the coalface. Yeah. And and that's the thing that I've really enjoyed is being able to listen to in, in like, so we work with engineering services businesses and quite often if you talk to the younger people in those businesses, you learn a lot more about the business than if you're talking sure. to the middle management. Mm. Um, but often we'll be also talking to the, the C-suite kind of people. So speaking of, of management, because it seems like you've obviously started right from, you know, the bottom there from junior to midway, mm. art director, um, senior, senior, then art direction and then, and then managing yeah, so teams. So I went from being the art director um, to then um, managing the business. Wow. Now, so I, I've, I've always worked with this attitude that the business that I'm working for is like my own business and so I'll put everything into it. Um, and what happened at Horniak and Canny is suddenly I found myself managing the business, like the, the um, Julian Canny. Um, was a great person to work with and a great mentor. Um, Uri Horniak left the business and so I then started working really closely with Julian Canny um, to build the business and to manage it. Um, we um, had 40 people working for us. We had an office in Sydney and an office in Melbourne um, and it was it was exciting times. We were working with Coca-Cola, Fosters, Commonwealth Bank, AMP, NRMA, Qantas, Commonwealth Bank, you know, like... Yeah, the biggest brands in Australia back big, then. Yeah. Big, big brands um, and on very um, serious projects. Um, and we had a fantastic team. Um, 
but I, I, one of the things that, you know, I'd been working as a designer, art director, and then suddenly I was managing this business and I was probably spending about 75% of my time staring at Bill Gates' programs, yep. projections and, you know, and 25% creative. Can you pinpoint what um, sort of learning um, that you, you can sort of advise people that are looking to transition as well into more yeah. of a leadership management role? Is there anything that you have, have a mentor? Mentor. You yeah, have someone cool. that's that's specialists in different areas that are going to help you. Um, so I had a, a person, a personnel expert who was a mentor um, and his name was Don Smith. He was fantastic. He, um, I spent time with him once a week um, and we just talked about things that were going on in the business with people um, and how to manage people um, and that was the most fantastic experience um, and really valuable because he helps you. You know, if it's not working out right, you've got to work out why they're not fitting in the culture of the business but you've also got to think about them and their future um, and quite often if they're not right in your organisation and you have the right conversations with them and you can point them in another direction, when they go to that new direction, if it's the right direction, they come back and say thanks for that, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a lot of empathy that you've got to have an understanding of people. Um, so that was, yeah, yeah. And it's just having the right people helping you yeah, but also making sure that there is the right people underneath you and they've mm. got opportunities. Yeah, I, I can totally um, sort of um, relate to that advice when reflecting upon my own personal journey. Hmm. Um, and in fact, um, and, and the listeners would know this, but my, my second book's coming out um, this year called How to Get a Mentor um, as a Designer. And, and for that very reason, I think we all understand the importance of getting a mentor, Mm. Um, you know, they allow us to uh, succeed faster, to see the blind spots and to um, basically get the shortcuts um, and, and, you know, not having us um, not to dismiss hard work, but not um, sort of uh, sending us into the wrong path and we're working really hard and, and, um, you know, it's really the wrong direction. So as you said, um, surrounding yourself with people that have done it um, is is key. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. Now um, let's shift the needle a bit to talk about um, how you feel about female designers. Um, Would you say um, they are treated differently to male designers um, in the context of opportunity, decision-making, influence perhaps? Um, Has it changed much over time, that that perception of of female designers? Um, Well, I've never really felt that there's any difference between male and female designers and I've never um, experienced um, a gender um, imbalance Um, and I I haven't felt that from um, the people I've worked with or the bosses that I've had and I haven't felt it from the clients um, that I've had either. So... um, I mean, I'm a bit of an anomaly, right, because I don't have kids. I didn't want to have kids. Um, So that's a slightly gender Mm. um, anomaly in in that mix. 
right? So the gender politics and messaging and that kind of stuff is quite sure. different from yeah. my experience. So, um, but I've never really felt like you know I'm being underpaid. Um, I'm not being valued. Mm. Um, it's it's always been the opposite. Yeah. You know, sure, yeah. Shit, I can't can't believe I'm getting paid this much. <laughs> and, and wow, that person is actually listening to what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, no, that's good. I think um, it's just a question I ask, and and I will be sort of asking yeah. more females as I as I get them on, um, just to sort of get their opinion, and and you know, for this podcast to also be a voice. Also, uh, managing people, mm. right? Um, I don't, I don't think that I've ever thought you know, any differently between the guys or the girls that work for you. Mm. Um, there, there comes, a, um, you know, an issue when someone's working for you and, and they have children and they can't work for you five days a week mm. um, and how you manage that in a um, corporate design studio um, where you're working on time-critical projects is difficult. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, because so, you'd be able to see that from from a leadership point of view, and and you know, some of the, it, it's a bit different now that the the projects work quicker, right? And so, so let me reverse that then. If if there is a uh, mother or a new, you know, or, well, let's just say there's um, there's a woman that needs to leave early to obviously um, attend to or a father. To motherly duties, but then again, even a father. So yeah. what? I mean, there's no real. It's really up to them, Mm. right, to manage their time, right, around that situation and then work with their team members to cover for them if they need covering. Yeah, and open communication. Exactly. Being being open, being honest, being kind of, you know, and and also a lot of it is preparing, Mm. right. And and also now if um, someone says, oh, got to pick my kid up from school mm. to a client, the client is more often than not, mm. you know, accepting of that. Yeah, so that's right. So what about those in an interview situation when they bring that up up front, knowing that, oh, I should probably tell this potential employer about my situation? And it's not might not even be about family. Oh, it might be about their personal. I know, think it's it's important to... To put it on the table to get those boundaries worked out before you start somewhere, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise, once you start, if there's pressures from home mm-hmm. and those pressures are, you know, creeping in on your on your career, yeah, um, that that's it's a difficult one for you to then deal mm-hmm. with if you haven't been upfront. And- it really is a two way street, isn't it? Yeah, the partnership of of employee and employer. Yeah, um, so. I also really want to get to the topic of relevance. So let's jump to that um, relevance as in staying relevant. Yep. Um, it's a huge topic for designers, especially those formerly trained, such as yourself, all the way back in the 70s and 80s. Yep. You know, there are a lot of designers who are struggling to stay relevant. Um, how did you feel during this time of, of rapid change and have you got any tips to to stay relevant? Yeah, oh, I think the biggest tip is to listen to your clients and understand what your clients are needing. Mm. Um, and this also goes to talking to the younger people in your clients' businesses because they're the ones that are thinking about the future. Um, so 
we work with a big um, engineering services business, Wally Parsons, um, and I work very closely with them on um, brand strategy and um, basically their brand custodian, Um, so working with the CEO and and the senior management. But um, I do really try to keep in touch with some of the the young guns in the organisation and one of the most exciting projects that we've produced recently was a um, sales interactive tool and we worked with one of the young guns um, on a sales interactive tool that's an online um, sales tool that, you know, just kills PowerPoint mm. um, and it's something that you can use on the web but it's also something you can put on a thumb drive and take to a client meeting and it captures all the information that you'll need to discuss about this sale, this project. So it's like keeping in touch with the younger needs um, and then also um, tapping into the young guys that are working for you. Yep. So they're the ones that are coming out of uni with the ideas and the new thoughts and ways of doing things. This is so good, you know, and, and for the listeners, you know, you, you've heard it first. Mm. You know, there is a a deep um, need for your enthusiasm, your known um, digital skill sets um, that are really um, natural mm. and almost so intuitive um, that, that you can bring to the table um, when it comes to um, thinking, oh, you know, what can I leverage? Mm. Well, um, your your natural knowledge of being born in an era where um three or your two and a half to three-year-olds are navigating through an ipad like you know they just came out with it or something um is remarkable um so i guess it's to your point robin um surrounding yourself with mentors but in a way there is that exchange as well you young mentors for you (laughs) exactly yeah yeah spot on and mentors aren't there's no prerequisite that they have to be older than you no um, and and if if we we're in that sort of space of talking about those types of relationships, a mentee and mentor, if you were to mentor them, mentors are actually getting something out of it too. You hope so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be that would be the ideal. So, um, what would be uh, your advice on sort of practical professional development? Um, upskilling um, yeah. and things like yeah, that. Because well, you did say asking for the client needs, but then if you're not exposed to, I guess, solutions that are relevant now, mm. um, what would be your go-to? Would you would you kind of go online or or you know find some courses? Would you um, would you you know speak to this younger generation and and kind of go, okay, well, research shows that I've got to be more informed on Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Mm, you know, mm. what I is mean, it? One practical um, example of this is, you know, I was hearing from our clients more and more that they wanted video, right, and and accessing messaging to their staff and getting the communication out there. Now, companies like Commonwealth Bank have been doing that for years, um, but a lot of, um, you know, engineering businesses and things haven't embraced that technology as much. So we, um, I went, okay, I need to kick the guys in my studio's asses and I'm going to go and do some video courses because they don't have those skills. So I went and did some fantastic courses at the Australian Film and Television School. So good. 
was the most amazing place. What was it? After hours, weekends? You Um, made time for this? When? Yeah, they've got a thing called afters, right? So you can do them on the weekends um, and after hours. Um, And they also do some courses where, like, it might be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or they might be Thursday, Friday. Um, But most of them are on the weekends, and and it's fun. You know, well, you so you enroll. You you found the need. You found an opportunity, really. Yep. And you upskilled yourself. Bought the equipment. Bought the equipment. Got out there. So I'm shooting on a um, DSLR camera. I've also got a um, a, a video, small video camera, um, and I've got a zoom and mics and you've got the setup, got the it. lights, got everything. Um, For those listening, her equipment's all here, so <laughs> she's not kidding around. And so, so you embraced it, right? So you, yeah. And then I taught know. myself Final Cut Pro. Wow. But unfortunately. Um, I did some courses at Afters as well for Final Cut Pro. Fortunately, Apple, you know, stopped their investment in Final Cut Pro, so they've had to learn Premiere, which was like, oh, my God. Bummer. Um, yeah, but yeah. Premiere is a beautiful program yeah. to work with. It's fantastic. Okay, so so in that perfect example you gave of, um, of intentionally and self-initiated um, sort of uh, learning, um, why do you think... A lot of um, those in your situation in terms of, you know, starting 70s, 80s um, in the industry, why do you feel their fears are amplified or, you know, potentially sort of um, they, they don't know really what what to move into, what to focus their energy on staying relevant no, in? We just don't have the energy or, I don't know, the foresight to actually go, like there's a, quite a big speed arm. When you're looking at in front of you when you think I'm gonna learn this new skill. How would you I'm say gonna master it? I'm gonna get there. Yeah. I mean, because the energy I'm getting f- from you is is very youthful. It's very, you know, you're you're quite a, it's, a, it's passion, you know? Yeah, like, passionate, that's the word, exactly. If you, if you like what you're doing, um and and my attitude was like, well, this is like a, this is like getting winding the clock back because mm. it's hands on. I've got a camera in my hand. Yeah. I've got tools, I've got lights, you know. I'm not just sitting staring at a computer screen. Mm. I'm talking to people. I'm interviewing people. Yeah. Um, I've got to work with the people to get them to perform on the camera. Yeah, the, you that's know. interesting because so you've found what ignites you that reminded you of, of the hands-on experiences that you, mm. were, that you were ignited by before mm. um, and that's, that's, I think there's a clue in that because you didn't go for, oh, you know, coding is like something I should know. You didn't go down that, that path. And I think there, there is merit to say, um, as you said, wind back the clock, look at what, you know, you were very curious at that you loved and, and how that translates now. Yep. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, it's up to the person, isn't it? To- well, it's, well, yeah, and, and it's what, you know, what you can what you can get passionate about, mm. you know. Um, and, but, you know, but not to not to be afraid to evolve. No, too. no, that's right. And I went and did a, um, a course about um, TV presenting. Right now I don't want to be a TV presenter, sure. but I did the course. It was a two-day course and it was fantastic, but it actually helps me direct people. I was going to say, that'd yeah. be perfect for that. Mm. Very cool. Um, would you say that your design process has changed much oh. over time? The design process has changed massively. Okay. Um, you know, when I first started, 
the first boss I had gave me an A2 piece of paper, right? And if you couldn't solve the concept and the layouts for an annual report on an A2 piece of paper, you had both sides of the paper. You had to eat it. <laughs> what right? do you mean? Physically eat it? So you <laughs> you learnt to draw very small yeah. and you learnt to write your thoughts down and then to sell the concept that you would have come up with and maybe there's two or three concepts, you would take that A2 piece of paper into a meeting and you would sit down with him and you would, or the team, and you would talk about your thoughts and what you thought the concept should be and why. It was all on the A2 piece of paper. Wow. Now um, we all have our little books, little leather-covered books, and we draw and we take notes and things in them. But most of the designers that I work with now jump on a computer and they start to think about things with a mouse in their hand. Yeah. Or a a pen. How do you feel about that? Look, um, I got thrown out of Enmore um, when I did a talk there um, probably about 15 years ago because I said, how many of you get a pencil and paper and do your concepts? And um, most of them put their hands up and some of them didn't. And I said, well, the guys that don't didn't put your hands up, um, what do your teachers say to you? And they said, well, the teacher doesn't like us because we don't use paper. I said, well, if you work for me, that would be fine because you've grown up with a mouse in your hand. You can think as well as the other guys can. But I still revert to the paper. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, I could fight with the guys downstairs that they need to, but they can still do the concepts and crack ideas and things with a mouse in their hand. So, Yeah, I'm I'm still kind of with you, though, on on the paper, pen to paper. Um, I just think that um, for the simple reason that something happens from a physiological standpoint that I just can't get. What on, about on drawing the on an iPad? Well, that's probably <laughs> one thing that I'd transition to only because I actually use a Wacom pad anyway on the computer. And now there's these great programs you know, that Adobe have brought out where you yep. just draw and it automatically turns it into a box. Yep. Yeah, and like, you can move stuff around on the iPad. And you can fill it with Laura Mimpson. Yeah, <laughs> all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think I think there is something quite powerful in noting your ideas. It is a, on, on the paper, it is a blank canvas and, you're, and you remember things more in my experience because I'm physically and writing can, things down. you can down. shut out all those other yeah. emails. It's, and, mm-hmm. you, you're pretty much grabbing all the thoughts in your head. And you're 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 almost um, you know making them real. Yeah, it's a physical artifact, and I mean that's just where I come from on that. Um, let's talk a bit about reducing stress in a world where oh, the other big changes you know, is it's, it. things have slowed down. Uh, things have sped up, right? Yes. So the, the the design process from concept to fruition mm. is faster. There's less budget to do it, mm. and it. Just needs to happen. Um, Perfect so. segue to to uh, the Stress. demands of of, of um, you know clients and whatnot. So you know we're always searching for this work life balance. But uh, actually, uh, I heard Anthony Robbins uh, on a podcast recently, and he, and he says that uh, he doesn't believe in work life balance. He believes in work life integration, where um, you know things are um, s- 
seemingly intertwined with each other, you know, and, yeah. and which is why doing what you love is so um, important. But um, how do you manage or yeah. sort of? There's a, there's a guy yeah. like um, Buckingham. Buckingham? Yes, yes, yeah, I think yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> who, who talks about your passion for what you're doing. Yep. Um, but the way I relieve my stress, um, I get up every morning and I go for a walk along um, from Bronte to Coogee and then back again along the coast and look at the sea. Painful walk. Yes, beautiful. <laughs> um, have so a good. coffee uh, and then we come into work with my partner Um and we we do a bit of exercise and stuff at the outdoor gym as well. Cool. Um, and then we come into work. But I, I guess the um, the biggest way to relieve stress is to have fun with the people that you're working with, not take yourself too seriously, and enjoy your client interactions. So good. So um, I often have this um, angst in in when I've got people working for me, new people working for me and trying to get them to get this concept that the client isn't an enemy, they're actually a friend. And the client's getting frustrated or you're frustrating the client. You've got to work out, hang on a minute, they're a human being. They're actually quite a rational person. How can I make this work better? So don't get frustrated with your clients. Actually see them from their perspective and try to work it so that it works smoothly with them. Mm. And if you've got that attitude when you're working with clients, they don't stress you. Um, and they might have some massive deadline that they really got to push you through. But if you understand what that deadline is, mm. then you can work through it. Um, so important. Um, you know, it's not an episode of Law and Order where they're, Probing you, <laughs> it's it's a collaboration, right? Yep. Um, and then I guess it alludes to also um the fact that um when you ask a friend a deadline, um you're honest and open, and also you can question um what will that deadline achieve yep. if we push it out a yep. couple more days? Yeah. Will it drastically impact the outcome? Mm. And um. That things can be managed, right? So, sure. so you know, that's that's a really good uh, headspace. I mean, my, to other, be in. my other escape is golf, so I like to play golf. Just like smashing stuff with a club or actual golf balls. Actually, I actually <laughs> play golf. I play for handicap of eight. So, um, I was just reminded by um, don't know where it is, but there's a place where you can where they give you a, a bat or a golf club, and it's a room where they've got plates and vases, and you pay like to smash things five ten minutes. <laughs> And you go hard out and just smash everything in there. It's a it's a, like a anger release <laughs> room no service worries. or some sort. I have been known to use scream technique too. So you know, <laughs> if I if I do really get worked up, going out on the um, rooftop deck here, yeah, and just letting your lungs go, um, it scares everyone in the studio, <laughs> but it does actually work quite well. Yeah. That's cool. So um, let's wind down a couple more questions, Robin. Um, where um, would you like to see the role of designers move towards in the next, you know, 10 to 20 years? Um, I would like to see a bit more analogue. Wow. Come okay. back into things. Fair. Yeah. Um, I in think, what aspect? Well, I think that um, with this enthusiastic embrace of digital technology mm. and all things computers, mm. um, a lot of designers 
could benefit from actually going to a life drawing class. Yeah, cool. Or just learning to use a pencil and pens. And like I've got coloured pencils on my desk and I often just pull them out and muck around with them, you know. So good. And I reckon there's probably not that many designers, studios, that you would go in and go, oh, there's coloured pencils mm. on her desk. This um, reminds me of um, a conversation I had with the Vice President of uh, Product Design and Development of Herman Miller right. when I was there in uh, West Michigan and had lunch with him after the talk I delivered to Herman Miller and um, he was describing his experience with teaching his seven-year-old son how to um, draw or paint and um, the son was getting frustrated because they were painting a, painting a deer and then he was like, how, Daddy, how come I can't draw the deer like you? And then he said, um, well, what is a deer? And then the son just looked at him perplexed and puzzled like, what are you on, Dad? And then he said, well, a deer isn't angry, violent, erratic. A deer is graceful, it's peaceful, it's majestic. And um, he just expressed and articulated that yeah, sort beautiful. of feeling of, of of the importance of empathy and all yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So amazing. Um, now, the question I ask most of my guests um, is if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Robin Wakefield, perhaps the Robin finishing high school, what would you tell her? Well, I'd probably tell her to keep doing the same things she did. Um, one, one thing I would say is do a bit more schooling than you did previously. So keep up with, um, you know, I've, I've got the schooling and that kind of stuff coming into my life in my 50s, mm. but I wish I had done a bit more of that, say, in my 30s and my 40s. Mm. Um, what kind of schooling do you mean? I don't think it hurts to, you know, do some, mm. do a master's or do some more education. Cool. Um, yeah, keep pushing cool. yourself, you know. Um, Never-ending learning, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I know that architects have that to to um, keep your registration. You have to keep doing a certain amount of, um, and I think that um, designers, designers too, though, would, yeah. would be it would be good. Yeah, love that. Uh, who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? Um, perhaps okay. someone you know who's inspired you to think bigger and and dig deeper. Uh, yeah, th- this this kind of goes. You go. Um, to older people in your life, but I keep going back to younger people that have worked for me. Mm. Um, so Jamie, my business partner, um, was a young designer that kicked my ass. Mm. Um, so I think they're, you know, the big thinkers. The um, there's There's been many, you know, Edwin Hooper that worked for us for seven years was another, um, you know, ass kicker. Wow. Um, Dan Ling Zhao, the one that took us for the crazy Chinese meal, um, another, you know. And she she would be someone maybe useful for you to talk to because she's a cage rattler. Yeah, cool. We like that. <laughs> um, but but then if I go to the older people, um, I switch to my clients, mm. right? So there's a guy, John Grill, who um, started Wally Parsons, one of our um, major clients, um, who's definitely been a um, mentor and a, and a 
in and he's also my golfing partner. Yeah, cool. Um, Howard McDonald, who um, ran a number of um, FMCG companies, Pacific Dunlop and various other companies. So working with those kind of people has been exciting. Um, and then the Julian Canny that I mentioned from um, Horniak and Canny mm. would be another one. Love the diversity. Um, so what's next for you, Robin, and everything you're involved in for this year and beyond? Um, well, more of the same with Walter Wakefield. Um, How long has Walter Wakefield been running? We started in year 2000, so we've been wow. going 16 years. It's amazing. Congratulations. Um, yeah, it's fun, you know. I mean, I'm probably, you know, handing more and more of the business over to Jamie Walter. Mm. Um, and, and the guys that work for me, um, Adrian and, um, you know, and, and the guy that runs our finance IT, um, mm. is my life partner, Neil Palmer, and he's another um, partner in the business. Amazing. So, um, I mean, we're, I don't want to keep working as much as I have worked. Sure. Yeah. Um, going forward. So we've got a nice place in the country and go down there and chill out down there. Beautiful. Play a bit more golf. But but also keeping um, keeping relevant, mm. you know, doing my video work and keeping in touch with the clients and understanding their brands and helping them on the on the journey. Um, but but I would say it's probably going forward. It's it's a more mentor role for Walter Wakefield mm. um, than than the hands on role that I have been. Yeah, I mean, perfect. I mean, you should. Definitely be uh, transitioning into into that part of your life. If yeah. I'd, I'd certainly be doing the same thing and hiding <laughs> it, hiding in my studio, creating bad art. Yeah, <laughs> cool, love it. We're going to have to see that now. <laughs> um, so, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Um, well, they can get in touch through WalterWakefield.com.au. Cool. Um, they can send an email to info at walterwakefield.com.au. Nice. Um, they can track me down on Facebook if they want to um, and maybe also Snapchat. Yeah, cool. I've been um, snapping a lot, guys. So Yeah. <laughs> one, one word of warning, though, is that I, I am sometimes a little politically incorrect on Facebook, so be careful. <laughs> Heads up. Um, cool, Robin. Well, that's, that wraps up our interview. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your story with us. It's been such a pleasure having you um, on the show. I mean, I've had no one else like you before on here, so it's a great privilege. And um, I wish you even more continued happiness and um, success. I can't wait for uh, how the next chapter unfolds for you. Exciting. Honoured to be part of this. Giants, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you collected a chunky amount of insights from Robin. Isn't she great? Hit her up if you feel inclined. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you on Twitter, Facebook, or Snapchat. Her handle is her first and last name. So a couple things before you race off. I'm incredibly excited about the next guest. He first started his entrepreneurial journey at 11 years old with a blog. And now at 16, he is the CEO and founder of a tech empire, which brings to kids the Lego of the 21st century. He's even been referred to as the next Steve Jobs and was awarded the Australian Young Innovator of the Year. Secondly, a quick reminder to check out Igloo. It's modern cloud-based intranet software, a central meeting place that connects people, information and processes you and your team have access to what they need using tools they already know 
Igloo has been recognized as one of the fastest growing tech companies in both Canada and North America, alongside names such as Tesla, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. If nothing else, you've got to see their very quirky 30-second video. Head to giantthinkers.com slash igloo. Lastly, I've loved reading some of your reviews for the podcast on iTunes. So thank you so much for those that have spent the time to write them. If you haven't already, please make sure to let me know your thoughts by going to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. And just like the sponsors, reviews really do help the podcast keep going. And I love being able to bring you valuable content through the guests time and time again. I've also been heavily addicted to Snapchat. So add me to check out my daily ramblings and all the behind the scenes stuff. I'm at The Giant Thinker. That's it from me. I'll end on a thought from Robin who said, when we were children, there was no such word as can't. So be curious, explore, go the opposite direction, then the pack, attempt, learn and keep moving. 